The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, this is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Welcome to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. And on te- behalf of, of our entire team, I wish all of you a, a year of health and happiness and prosperity. And, and with my fingers crossed, Good luck on, on the return of normalcy for all of us. Uh, but it will never, ever be realistic to expect that or even imagine that there will be normality when it comes to politics in New Jersey. Uh, that's what makes the state so incredibly good. Just when you you think you've got Jersey all figured out, you can reliably expect a curveball to come at you. Uh, so, so all of us begin 2022 with much anticipation. Uh, New Jersey legislators will return to Trenton on Monday. Uh, they're going to have some committee hearings in the Assembly. It's part of a lame duck session. It ends January 11th. They've got a lot to do before January 11th, and, and, and there's a good chance they won't get to everything that some people would like. But, but the clock stops at noon on the 11th, a new legislature with mostly new leaders should take office. Governor Phil Murphy will be sworn in for a second term a week later on January 18th, and we have congressional races coming up, some that could decide whether Nancy Pelosi stays as Speaker of the House or if the new Speaker is a Republican. Believe it or not, filing deadline for the June primary is just three months away, and some towns have fire commissioner elections in February. So welcome everybody to Jersey, the the state where politics never sleeps. And there is no better way to kick off the first New Jersey Globe Power Hour of the year than to speak with one of my favorite people, Micah Rasmussen. He is the director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. Micah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, David. Thank you for coming back. You were on last week. We had so much to talk about. An hour wasn't enough, and and I'm I'm grateful for you taking some time out of your uh, your your holiday to to be with us, Mike. I want to start by trying to stump you on a political trivia question. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. So, what monumental historic event in New Jersey politics occurred 37 years ago today, January 1st, 1985? Oh, boy, I'm just going to this is going to be a stab in the dark. This is completely wild. No preparation beforehand. But I'm going to say Livingston mayor sworn in. Uh, maybe you. Is that is that right? It was. I was sworn in as a Livingston councilman. It's showing how old I am. But I was I was 23 years old and and sworn in as a councilman in Livingston 37 years ago today. And, and congratulations. And That's a great thanks. It, it, it seems like so, so, you know, so long ago. But but uh, this is my way of introducing coming up at at 435. Um, Mike and I are going to be joined by a, a very special guest, Sean Clark. He's the mayor of Livingston right now. He's got my old job. Uh, he was in elementary school when I first won a council seat. Uh, mayor Klein's incredibly smart. He's a forward thinker on some massively important issues facing the state. So you're not going to want to miss what he has to say. And, and Micah, the number one topic I've been hearing about between Christmas and New Year's is congressional redistricting. And and the logic of of the tiebreaker uh, who picked the Democratic map, former New Jersey Supreme Court Justice John Wallace, this, this is bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. And, you know, the fact that we spent almost a full hour on it last time and, and we still haven't said anywhere near everything that needs to be said, 
Um, it, it was a bizarre statement that he made. Um, and really, this is what blew the whole thing up in everybody's minds is when he came out in the public hearing and said, you know, I'm voting for the Democrats map this time because last time the Republicans had their map. And this flew in the face of the entire process that he had laid out, all the standards that he had laid out. And I think as I've reflected more on it and talked to some more folks, I think we've been both a little hard on him and also not hard enough. Um, because on the one hand, he didn't really just say that he did a coin flip and this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm going with, right? He also said he was picking between two maps that he had judged to both having met his criteria that he laid out. Right. And so from that perspective, it wasn't like one was a dog. You know, he was picking between two that he felt were um, were, were both equally uh, uh, meeting his objectives. Well, let me do this just for people who, who uh, you know, understandably right before uh, on Christmas Day missed this show. Uh, let me ask Diego to play the clip again of exactly what Justice Wallace said. In summary, both delegations aptly applied our standards to their map. In the end, I decided to vote for the Democratic map simply because in the last redistricting map, it was drawn by the Republicans. Thus, I conclude that fairness dictates that the Democrats had the opportunity to have their map used for this next redistricting cycle. So, Micah, I mean, this is, there's no doubt, Justice Wallace, you know, very smart man, respected jurist, he's, but he's 79 years old, and, and what I keep getting from people that were uh, were part of this process is this was just not a this wasn't a good fit for John Wallace. Yeah. Yeah. What I keep on hearing over and over again is that he was not engaged um, and he was checked out. And, you know, what? in a way we almost and this is where I think, you know, maybe you got to give just a tiny fraction of fairness. Um, in, in, in many ways, the process was exactly what you'd expect from a judge. He wants to reduce his role and his decision down to the cleanest, smallest question possible. Choose between two maps. Um, make it a binary choice. Um, you know, but when you do that, you're picking one of two party-drawn maps. And it's very clear that we could have done a lot more than that. We could have, we had, you know, we had, we had, excuse me, these Princeton gerrymandering folks who staffed him. They certainly had the capability to carry forth the standards and the criteria that they judge maps on around the country. They've not been shy about using those parameters anywhere else. And yet, you know, here, their role was simply limited to informing Wallace on which of the two party maps uh, was going to better meet the criteria he set forth. So uh, right before, uh, I think it was on the day before New Year's Eve, the 30th, Republicans filed a lawsuit. And they filed it based on exactly that, this this judge's philosophy of of his, his statement, his his words. I chose this map because it was the Democrats' turn. Republicans won last year. Is this is this lawsuit? Uh, you think it's going anywhere? Or you think it's more just window dressing to show Republicans they're putting up a fight? Yeah, that's uh, it's the latter for sure. I mean, this is all about. And you mentioned um, Nancy Pelosi early on in your introduction. Listen, this is all about national power and how this fits into the midterms. And um, you know, I think that the uh, New Jersey Republicans needed to save face. They lost the map. Um, now, keep in mind, 
and I think they're responding to the fact that they lost the map and their map wasn't chosen. But that statement notwithstanding, the, the map notwithstanding, I guess I wonder whether you have any more of a sense now, more reflection, more time to look at it and think about it, as to whether, in my mind, the GOP got a lot of what they were looking for, right? You know, they, they set the highest standard all year long, the highest priority that they set was they wanted a better district for Tom Kane. That was going to be their top priority. They got that. And they got they, that. They, they got that. Right. They got that. Exactly. They wanted to shore up Van Drew, which, which they certainly did. Um, uh, Congressman Smith, Chris Smith, got a, uh, a more Republican district. It's certainly maybe not the one that he would have chosen. It's maybe not pretty, but he got a more Republican district than he had. So, you know, Van Drew and Smith getting more Republican districts, that's the flip side of improving Andy Kim's district. So I don't see so much that they really lost out other than the fact that their map wasn't chosen. I wonder what it's opportunity cost, right? I mean, it's David Wasserman of the Cook Political Report, the the number one nonpartisan analyst of house races in the country. He's already put Mikey Sherrill and Josh Gottheimer uh, on the safe Democratic list. He he doesn't he looked at those districts and he says Republicans don't have a chance. He he has Andy Kim, who who had represented Ocean County and Jack Chitterelli won his district by 14 points. Donald Trump won that district narrowly, but he won it. And now Kim is a likely, likely winner. Is this, is this just, you know, is this a map where where they're going to, they may pick up one seat, but now they're thinking, wow, we could have, could have gotten more. Well, okay. But, but again, be careful for what you wish for, because if you had asked uh, the Republicans beforehand, if you came out of this process with a better district for Kane and with that more Republican districts for Van Drew and for Smith, I think they probably would have jumped at that, right? So now that they got that, they want to say, well, what else could we have gotten, right? So, so in a way, you know, this comes from having a short list of, of desires and a short list of priorities, which is what they had by all accounts all year long. No, I mean, once we got beyond that, what else were they looking for? Um, so, you know, I, I really think that that's the problem that they faced. I, I, um, um, I think the big loser in this map, if I could say, is competitiveness, right? We know that that's what's going on. We know that these are safer seats on both sides of the aisle. But you know what, David? That's not a New Jersey phenomenon. That is a nationwide phenomenon. We are right. seeing that across that's the country, true. right? Yeah, that's true. But let me I want to ask a question about John Wallace and, and, you know, tell me tell me if you think this is unfair. But but the the role of the tiebreaker was supposed to be the independent member. Doug Steinhardt, the the Republican chair of redistricting, said, you know, don't don't kid yourself. It wasn't a tiebreaker. It was simply John right. Wallace was the seventh Democratic member. Uh one of the things that I've looked at since this map was done was the was the influence. I remember, you know, Wallace comes out of a, a firm with huge ties to the South Jersey Democrats, but but I w- I looked at campaign contributions uh, made by the justice's wife this cycle to to a Democratic House member whose district was uh, w- was was drawn to a, a federal wow. pack called Stop Republicans, and and Micah more wow. more concerning to me 
And 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 I'm not I'm not casting any aspersions on John Wallace. Like I said, you know, mm-hmm. decent, honorable man. But when his wife ran for mayor a couple of years ago of Washington Township in Gloucester County, she got huge, huge donations from the same Democratic power brokers that were vested in this map. I mean, Steve Sweeney gave her eighty two hundred dollars, and his Iron Workers Union contributed, and and Gloucester County Democrats like over thirty thousand dollars. Bonnie Watson Coleman, and 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 this is no reflection on, on, on Congresswoman Watson Coleman, but but she gave over eight thousand dollars. So there, you're not talking about you're not talking about tiny little contributions. You're talking about tens of thousands of contributions to the the tiebreaker's wife. And I guess my question is this if if a matter had come before John Wallace while he was serving as a judge and and one of the parties involved had these kind of ties to a member of his family would he have recused himself? Right. Well, isn't it ironic that we're talking about this on a day that Chief Justice Roberts of the Supreme Court of the United States is saying that judges across the country in the federal judiciary have to be more careful about financial conflicts of interest? And um, that is a very valid question. Should he have taken on this role, knowing that um, you know that he had these potential? You know, remember, it's not actual conflicts. It's appearances it's appearance. of conflict that are right. the standard, right? And so, um, you know, so maybe he should have taken a walk on this one. Maybe he should have said, you know, to the Democrats who chose him. And it's important to remember that the Supreme Court of New Jersey didn't just pick him out of a hat. They picked between the Republican and the Democratic choice to be the independent member. And so the Democrats put him up. Maybe he should have said to the Democrats, no, thanks. I'm not doing this. And I think that may be right. I think that may be the lesson going forward is is that he should have said, "This is not a good job for me. I don't have a I don't I don't have institutional knowledge of politics. I've been a judge for 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 nearly forty. I was a judge for for thirty years. I you know I I don't have the command of geography. I don't know. I, I don't understand technology. But but look, you know these are these are lessons learned. And every ten years we get a lesson learned. And 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 the question is whether it'll repeat itself in the future. But I I'm speaking with Mike Erasmussen, the director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. Micah is, uh, is generously offered to stay on with me the whole hour. We've got a lot to talk about, uh, so, so don't go anywhere, please. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I am speaking to one of the smartest people I know, Micah Rasmussen, the director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. Micah, I want to I want to ask you. This is this is not a big statewide global issue, but uh, it deals with an election in Old Bridge, New Jersey, uh, in November. Uh, and, and and I don't know if you've 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 seen what's happening there, but a uh, a a council race was decided by 11 votes, and last week a judge threw the results out, threw them completely out, invalidated the election, and the reason was that there were a number of voters who were mailed the wrong ballots. They were they were put into a ward in which they didn't live. And when the, and there were a number of voters that when they got to the polling place, they were put into the wrong machine. Uh, Micah, how important is it for election officials and judges to just start getting this right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the Atlantic County question. We had a very similar type of problem where they, you know, in, in Atlantic County in the district races for the county commissioners, um, you know, people got the wrong ballot. And that was a very similar situation to what happened here. Now, 500, 500, over 500 voters in a, in a race that was decided by about 200 votes. Right, right, exactly. And what's interesting here is that you or I or any observer might naturally look to the county clerk or the county board of elections and say, well, what happened here? But, um, you know, the judge in the Old Bridge case laid it directly at the feet of the statewide voter database. He said that, you know, that these were voters that were key. Their 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 ward was uh, was keyed in incorrectly. Right. Their election district was keyed in correctly. And so now what's got to happen is they're going to have to re- unless unless the Democrat Jill DeCaro wins a, 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 an appeal. Uh, and this was this was a district where Republican incumbent Mark Rizzoli was just narrowly defeated. Uh, now what's got to happen is they've got to rerun this election. Uh, they've got to hold yeah. a brand new election in March. And, and what the, the climate on Election Day, November, uh, November 2nd, 2021, was is not necessarily going to be the same as it might be in March or April. Exactly. It's, it's entirely unfair. You know, look. In the, on the one hand, we, we ought to be happy that the judge in this case, we ought to be satisfied that the judge in this case was willing to act quickly and decisively. You contrast this with a situation like the one in South Tom's River that's been dragging on, right, that could have taken over a year. on Election Day, over a year, right? This is exactly. a 2020 election that's still not decided. Exactly. So it's a good thing that judges are willing to say, wait a minute, there's a problem here and we need to fix it. That's that that ought to be something that we all look look, look favorably upon. But, um, you know, it is important. And we look we're, in, in some ways, you and I are right back to the discussions that we were having right after Election Day this year on the errors that were made, other errors that were made in the statewide voter database, right, where people got entered for mail-in voting and they weren't put into their individual districts. They were put into everybody was put in the same town together. And so we will never have an accurate reflection on a district by district never. basis of this year's results. That's never going to happen. And so it's important that we learn from the mistakes each time. It's great that we have a statewide database, incredibly rich information, but it's important to get it right. And it's important that the towns and the counties are reporting the information uniformly into that database so that we can all have the same information and be working from the same page and not make some of these mistakes. We've got to work out the bugs, uh, especially now that we have all these different ways to vote that are taking off. And especially when more and more people are, are lacking confidence in, in the integrity of elections. And that's, and, and there needs to be, there need, they need to know that these elections are, there's no act, there's no allegation of fraud in Oldbridge. It was a, it was a data entry screw up, but an expensive one and an important one. And I, I gotta tell you this, Mike, and this is, this is, I mean, I, I will, I will complain about judges when I think I, they drop the ball. This judge in the Superior Court judge in Middlesex County, uh, Judge Thomas Daniel McCloskey, uh, I, I followed this case, case closely. I, I listened to it the entire hearing. This judge was on it. This judge understood the importance of moving quickly, of not dragging his heels. And I'll, and I'll tell you, this: he came out this week with a, a 40 page, nearly 40-page single-space decision. That means Judge McCloskey was working through the Christmas holiday uh, because he understands that the clock is moving on democracy. And, and he, he deserves, in my view, a whole lot of credit for that. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a model for uh, other judges to follow in other election challenges. We, we're, not, we're not saying that judges have to be activists. We're not looking for them to no, you know, go out no, and validate elections. But, the, but, but they need to be able to rule on these questions where there's ambiguity and where mistakes are made. There's got to be a recourse. And I'm speaking with Mike Rasmussen. He is the, the brilliant director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. Michael, let's go back to the congressional races. I want to talk about Tom Malinowski, two-term Democratic congressman from the, the 7th District. The map that his own party put in made that district uh, much, much more difficult to win. It, 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 it seems to favor Republicans. Congressman Malinowski has not yet said he's going to run for re-election. Is, is he is he waiting too long? Should he have should he have come right out of the box and says absolutely I'm running, or is or is he or is he right in 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 taking some time to analyze this district? I think he probably gets the benefit of the holidays, right? I, I don't think anybody's looking for you and I are are eating, breathing, and sleeping this stuff. But I think that everybody else's attention is focused elsewhere. You know, coming come this week. I think, you know, other people are going to start to focus on this stuff again, right? And um, and so people are going to be looking for an answer. You've had the holidays to think about it. You've had the time to, you know, regroup and take a look at the map closely and, and see what's going on. But, yeah, I mean, you know, look, you said this at the top of the hour. We are three months away from the filing deadline. So if by some strange chance he would decide this is not what I'm going to do, then, you know, the party has to decide what they're going to do in his place. And so it is a decision that's got to be made quickly. And this is, this happens, you know, it's like deja vu all over again. It happened, which is, which is a, you know, uh, uh, Yogi Berra's adopted state, so we can say that in New Jersey. Uh, but, but this is what happened in 2018. Rodney Freelingheisen, chairman, 24-year veteran of Congress, chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, you know, he got spooked out by Mikey Sherrill raising a lot of money, got spooked out by what looked to be and was a bad term, uh, bad, bad midterm election. And he waited till I think it was the last day in January to say, I'm retiring. And he left and that Republican. Yeah, that yeah, he left party chances. Yeah. Of, yeah, of course, he left Republicans with no real runway to raise the kind of money, the tens of millions of dollars it takes to win a congressional seat. So, so what's what's Malinowski's deadline? When does he when does he have to decide by? And I don't mean I legally. Think, we know legally it's equal yeah, to no, April, right. but <laughs> no, I think the sooner the better. I, I think I, I think. Um, Especially if he runs, he's got to start projecting strength. He's got to start projecting that he's got that he believes he's got a shot at this. Look, this was not a disaster. This was not the worst possible district he could have gotten. Right? It's still a district that voted for Biden, although you know more marginally. Um, it's it's not um, you know a slam dunk necessarily for Kane, though. You know, it looks like the environment's going to help him, and the map's going to help him, and he's got all those factors in his direction, but. I would say that if he's going to run, he's got to do it soon. He's got to signal that soon. Otherwise, you know, people are going to be wondering where he is. So I would say, you know, really in the very near term, we're talking about, you know, weeks, certainly. And this is a district where, where Chitterelli beat Phil Murphy, the new 7th District, 56-44. So that's a, that's a big swing. It's a big swing from the Biden election. Yeah, you and I have talked about this before. Look, do you count Malinowski out? No, of course you don't. But for a guy who struggled in his current district, you make the district tougher for him, and that is not going to make it any easier for him to win. Because he he beat Tom King Jr. by one point 
in 2020, and 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 Kane Jr. is running again. And, and and Mike, and I'm speaking with Mike Rasmussen, the director of the Rebovich Institute of Politics at Ryder University. If Malinowski doesn't run, is that game over for Democrats in the new seventh district? Yeah, because you know, again, even if he does make that decision in the near term, who gets in? starts from scratch, right, has no money in the bank and um, gets up to speed. What, you know, you, you will know this far better than I will, but how much money does Tom Kane have? What's the ballpark of what he's got in the bank? Well, he raised about a half a million dollars in the third quarter. We, you know, yesterday, December thirty-first, was the cutoff right. for the fourth quarter, and and he's everybody's got a month now to show yeah, their show yeah, their hands. Yeah. So right, you know, right, he, exactly. So, I think he's going to be looking at being close to a million dollars by the end of the year. Right, exactly. And so any challenger who comes in whose name is not Malinowski is going to start from zero and have to, you know, really come up to even. But also, as they're coming up to even, Kane is not stopping and waiting. He's, you know, he's, he's continuing to push forward. So, um, you know, you really start to see some of these challenges that, um, you know, that you have in any sort of a challenger capacity in, in terms of getting up to speed. And, and, and time is the biggest enemy that you've got. It's the biggest shortfall that you've got. And uh, so, you know, I, I, yeah, I see it being hard for the Democrats um, if you not run. Yes, I do. So let me, Michael, let me, let me ask you another question. Michael Rasmussen from, from Ryder University. Uh, I mean, today's New Year's Day. It's traditionally the start of that, that swearing in week where municipal and county governments reorganize. Uh, Steve Fullop, mayor of Jersey City, is being sworn in at, at 5 p.m. today for a third term as mayor. Uh, he's being sworn in by, uh, Northward North Councilman Anibal Ramos. Uh, Fullop today, delivered the oaths of office to mayors in Edison and in Hillside. I mean, this is unbelievable. Isn't I, I can't. Yeah, I can't help but think, you know, that that is this now the official start of the 2025 governor's race? I mean, full up oh, is sure. full up, I mean, full up's in Middlesex. He's in union. <laughs> Other than the fact that we already have a declared candidate, Steve Sweeney. Well, we have two declared candidates. Steve Sweeney declared, and Jack Cittarelli, in his concession speech, says, "I'm coming again." And by the way, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I, 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 I do say this tongue in cheek, but but he could rightfully claim Justice John Wallace's endorsement because Cittarelli lost last time, so he should win next time. But is this? You know, look, you you know, as we look at the uh, as I as I read your year in review, which was just amazing and thank you thank about, you so much um no and, and always i mean you know and thought about all these you know the exciting races and really the governor's race and how you talked about how it was one of the most fun and most to watch and follow of of the last 50 years i thought to myself well first of all that's because you covered it i mean you know you you really made it fun um and for all of us which is great and i know i'm thanking you on behalf of uh, all your listeners because um you know all of our listeners because uh, it just it's fun every day. I mean, you know, you've done it again, and I know you know this, but you know, you're the must read. You're the you're the guy who we who we turn on and read first, and so um, um, it's great. But thank you. We're, we are headed into what looks like another fun one, and uh, yeah, the more the merrier, right? I mean, you know, certainly um, Philip would. It's an amazing story. His comeback where he was a year ago, two years ago, and to see him back in the mix um, just shows that you only go away if you go away, right? You know, you stay in the game and you'll fight your way back and you claw your way back. 
all of a sudden you're back in the game. So it is amazing. And Steve Sweeney's going to follow that same model. So it's going to be a really uh, fun one to watch. And, of course, we're going to be able to watch it for the next four years. So who else should be watching? Who else should I mean, Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver reelected to it? And she's now run statewide twice, former Assembly Speaker Mikey Sherrill, I hear, you know, uh, Assembly Speaker yep. Craig Coughlin. Who, who else should we be looking for on the Democratic side as, as people start to maneuver over the next couple of years? Well, I think the Newark mayor, uh, Baraka, uh, you certainly has to be counted in. I, you know, we spoke with him about this when he was on campus um, last month, and he said, you know, he really looks forward to going around and having. He didn't say he's a candidate. He said he's he said he's running for mayor, running for reelection for mayor this May. But he said, you know, that we really need to be having some of these debates statewide, and that it'd be a lot of fun to do it. And he would do it whether or not he thought he was going to win. And so, um, you know, it certainly sounded to me like it's something that he's thinking about, and I, I wouldn't count him out. But um, you know, I, I think that one thing that comes from Steve Sweeney's loss is that no, nobody is going to clear this field. And so I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of interest from around the state um, in the nomination, don't you? I, yeah, I do. I do. I think you're right. And, uh, and, and you know, ain't, ain't nothing better than a, than, a, than a New Jersey governor's race. So, so I'm, I'm glad. Personally, I'm glad it's starting early. Uh, I am yeah, speaking. Look, I mean, you know, Nick, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but look, no, Nick Scutari and the meteoric ride that, rise that he has had, you can't, you certainly you can't have count to him out. You him in any discussion as well, right? No, and the yeah. Republican side, I mean, you know, Jack Cittarelli is probably the front runner, but you've got, you've got new names coming in. Michael Testa Jr., a lot of, you know, new leadership coming in the legislature. So, so I, I am speaking with Micah Rasmussen, the director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. He's going to join me. Uh, we will be right back to talk to Livingston Mayor Sean Klein. Uh, this is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back again. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. We are having some technical issues for for which I I deeply apologize. I am uh, again joined by Micah Rasmussen, the director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. We are trying to get Mayor Sean Klein of Livingston on the David, phone. I'm on the phone. Micah, you... Oh, the mayor there? That's yes. Mayor, are you on? Great. I'm on. Happy New Year, Mayor. How are you? I'm good. Happy New Year. Thank you. And and you you are and we're on with Micah Rasmussen of, of Ryder University. Uh, Happy New Year, Mayor. Happy New Year, Micah. You are uh, you 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 are the mayor of Livingston, New Jersey. It is a great job. It is the one that I was sworn into, uh, Mayor, exactly 35 years ago uh, today. Um, so it's a, it's a very special position. I, I do have to ask you, though, I was last time I was driving through Livingston, I passed Town Hall. I did not see a statue for myself out there. Is that in the works? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's the first suggestion we've had of it. So uh, now that you've uh, had the idea, we can try to push it forward on the council. Um, I do remember you, of course, uh, from your days as mayor. I was uh, I was younger than you. And I remember uh, you were in elementary school coming around. Uh, to the schools, and, and you know, you certainly made an impression even on a, uh, a young student at that time. <laughs> well, thank you. And then, Mayor Livingston's had an outsized impact on on New Jersey politics, hasn't it? 
I think it has. I mean, I, I, I call Livingston the land of governors, right? We're named after the first governor. We've had two of the most uh, prominent nationally uh, governors that have come out with Christie and Kane. Um, Brendan Byrne lived here for a little while towards the end of his life. So I think that um, when you look at the gravity of Livingston and, and uh, where it places itself in the state, we punch way above our weight. And, and look, I mean, I, I look at even today. I mean, New Jersey is partly run by, by Megan Coyne. She's a Livingston native, uh, aide to Governor Murphy. She runs a phenomenal uh, social media account, NJGov. If you, if you don't follow it, then on Twitter, you, you, you absolutely should. You've got, you've got Raj Parikh, one of the best election lawyers in the state. You have, you have County Commissioner Pat Siebold. She's been the Democratic chair of, uh, since 1975. She is extraordinary. I remember when I was younger, I wish she wasn't quite as good as she was. But, but she is excellent. So you've, you've, got, you've got a lot of people there that, that, that just, just really show, show a lot for the state. Well, I, I think that Livingston's always had a, a, um, a, been a it's always been a forward thinking uh, government. It's always um, been the kind of place where we've had great schools and wonderful communities. And, you know, when you have people from many different backgrounds coming together in that situation, there's, there's great product that results in it. And Micah, I want to Mike, Micah Rasmussen, I want to go to you and, and, and mm-hmm. see if you want to ask, ask a question, Mayor Klein. Well, well, I, I do, but but can I just ask whether to what extent you claim credit for Dick Cody, right, another governor, right, and and no, while he doesn't live in Livingston, his office is there, right? So you've even got That's that. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we I we uh, we can take some credit for for uh, Governor Cody because he's represented us uh, in the Senate so ably for so many years, and we've always supported him as a township. Uh, so we will definitely take credit for him if someone will, if someone will give us that credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I'll ask you the first uh, obvious, you know, the the obvious question. But how has it been to govern during COVID? What, what's that been like? I mean, COVID. So I feel like um, this has not been a year of fixing potholes and, and and making sure that the water is running when you turn on the tap, right? It's it's it, there's been such big issues that have impacted. Uh, not just Livingston, but, you know, uh, townships across New Jersey and the country and as and uh, as mayor, you know, and, and as part of our council, we've had to deal with these issues. Um, it's very trying on everyone in, in a similar way. Of course, we have a great medical center, uh, Cooperman Barnabas, uh, the flagship center for uh, for Barnabas um, Medical Center, uh, medical um, uh, institution. And we, uh, we 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 feel it all the time. It's just been very hard. Um, you know, the there are, there are festivals and events that we've canceled, and you know, it's very upsetting for us to cancel them. And it's very you know, we certainly hear about it on social media. Um, and but this is what it is to govern in these kinds of times. You know, it's just there's been uh, COVID is one one example. And you you look at climate change. We you know, we had a one in a thousand year storm in Livingston. We had nine inches of rain in you know over a few hours, and uh, it was horrible the next day to see everyone's basements. You know. Lot of, I get so many emails from people who newly renovated their basement with just all their stuff just out in the front yard, you know, just to, just to waiting for uh, garbage, to, uh, garbage men to come and collect it. So it's just been, it's been a difficult year. There's no doubt about it, but it's been an important year to, to provide good government. And, and we've been able to do that in Livingston. And, Mayor, when, when we talk about climate change, I mean, this, this, we're not talking about just a global issue. You, you specifically have really taken – uh, taking the bull by the horns on 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 climate change and clean energy issues. What's uh, what's going on in Livingston in terms of 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 your goals of creating clean energy? Well, I, I think um, there are a few different places that we've been able to act on that. I think one of the most important places going forward is green development of buildings. You know, I think it's a sad fact uh, that. 
uh, New Jersey leads the nation, I, I, you know, at least I heard as of a year ago, in losing their young people to other states. And if you, you know, young people care about this issue and they want to act on it. And if Livingston is going to attract the best and brightest, which we always have done before, we need to have green housing stock. We need to have uh, buildings that are, you know, have better um, requirements on, the, on their insulation and have solar uh, attached to them and have uh, charging for electric cars and all the rest of the things that we can do to decrease our carbon footprint. Um, and when these, um, you know, when we've had developers come in, we've negotiated for these things and we've, you know, we've given them some perks uh, in order to ex- extract these sort of green um, uh, components to their buildings. And I think one of the things that, you know, as a township, what we would ask the, the state to do uh, is to move forward in allowing uh, the townships to have requirements that are green. You know, we're not allowed to go above and beyond the universal construction codes. Um, and towns should be able to do that so that we can uh, make the greenest buildings that we can. Because, first of all, it's a moral imperative to fight climate change. But second of all, this is the future for attracting the, the best and brightest. And we want to make sure that we're competitive in doing that. So let's stay on the green theme for a minute here, a different kind of green. Every mayor and every town across New Jersey has had to deal with and grapple with questions about the legalization of marijuana this year and what they're going to bring to their town. How has Livingston been dealing with that? So, you know, we, we, this was another tough issue for the town. There were very strong opinions, as I'm sure there were in a lot of places. Um, we had several forums with, with basically hours of phone calls with, uh, you know, the entire council participated, and we heard from um, hundreds of residents uh, voicing their opinions on this. You know, we had people um, who were very strongly uh, pro-marijuana, either because they see it as a business uh, opportunity or because um, they think it's a social justice issue. Um, and then there's other people who we had people on the phone who compared it to opium. So, you know, obviously there's some misunderstanding there if that's how people feel. But it's there were such strong opinions in both ways. That I, but I think Livingston was able to find the right balance. I, I think at this point we're going to, you know, we're, we're moving forward. And a lot of the licenses that will be able to um, be pursued, you know, whether it's warehousing or cultivation or manufacturing wholesale, these are the kinds of things could be in a warehouse with no windows and no one's going to know that they're there. Um, when it comes to retail, which of course is the hot button issue, we're going to go slower on that because I think that um, residents need to see that in the towns that have retail, that it's not changing the character of the town, that it's not causing the youth to go, you know, to, to have a brain drain, um, that there's not, there's not car accidents because people are, are driving around, uh, you know, uh, using the substances. Um, and when people become a little bit more comfortable, I think at that point, Livingston can start to consider uh, moving forward on that. But for now, we're going to sit back on retail and, and move forward with other licenses that we can do. The mayor, and I'm speaking with Livingston Mayor Sean Klein. This is this is one of the challenges of of governing is is the sort of not in my backyard that NIMBY philosophy. Livingston, lots of other towns across New Jersey. I think it was every town but Walpack in Sussex County voted to legalize. Uh, uh, adult use recreational marijuana in 2020, but now there's there's so many towns that 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 maybe maybe didn't quite understand what they were getting into. Is that is that part of what's what the well, challenge think, was? You know, when we voted on the on the state referendum, it was a vote on legalizing marijuana use in, in adults, right? But it, that's not the same thing as the question: Do you want retail in your in your town? And I think there's a distinction there. Again, you know, uh, Governor Murphy was very. Uh, vocal and some of Cory Booker 
um, about, you know, the social justice issues involved here and that, uh, you know, for example, black people were getting put in jail way more often than white people, even though studies show that blacks and whites use uh, marijuana at the same rate. Correct. Yeah. And, and so a lot of people didn't like that. But on the other hand, they were also maybe not super comfortable um, with, you know, I talked to a lot of voters who, who said to me, you know, I voted to legalize in the state, but I'm not ready to have it in, in Livingston right now at this point, maybe in the future. And I heard that from a lot of people. And I think that's sort of where we straddled it. And I think that we did. You know, I think we landed in the right place. And let me ask you one last question. And, and Micah, please, please chime in on, on, on this if you'd like. But but we just finished congressional redistricting. Warts and all congressional redistricting is done. Livingston, uh, like like a good part of Essex County is staying with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Uh, uh, were you, were you relieved by that? Do you, you know, and how do you, how do you handicap Congresswoman Sherrill's chances now to win a third term? I mean, Livingston has come out strongly for, uh, for Congressman Sherrill, Congresswoman Sherrill, uh, the last couple of elections. And I don't see that changing in the future. We think she's done a great job. Um, she understands the importance of issues like, uh, like having another tunnel underneath the Hudson River. She's a champion on that. And uh, she's also fought for, um, you know, the salt relief. And I think that these are issues that are obviously very important to um, communities in New Jersey where there is we don't want to cheat. We don't want to lose people. Right. We want people to be able to live here and uh, afford the you know sometimes higher cost of living that you see in the northeast compared to other parts of the country. Um, and if they have to go to New York City for their job, we want to make sure they can get there. Well, Mayor you Sean you, Klein. You, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. No, no, you, you mentioned two very specific issues that I'm sure are going to be the centerpiece of her campaign, one of which she's gotten tremendous results on as part of the Democratic majority, which is the, uh, the tunnel infrastructure and the rail infrastructure. But what about SALT? Is it enough that she has fought the good fight and maybe doesn't have results yet? What do you think? Is that enough for, for the people of, of the district and of Livingston? I think that she has fought the good fight. I mean, the, you know, what's going on in the federal level is, uh, you know, if, if SALT's not moving forward, it's certainly not going to be because uh, Mikey's not been fighting hard for it. You know, she, she's, she is fighting hard for it. She talks about it all the time. Um, and that's what we need from, from our representatives, people who are representing what we need. Well, I've been speaking with uh, Micah Rasmussen of Ryder University and Livingston Mayor Sean Klein, which, which I think might be the most powerful mayorship in the state of New Jersey. So, <laughs> Mayor, thank you so much for coming on. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. Is, thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun doing this. And, uh, and have a happy New Year, gentlemen. You too. Thank you. And, and this is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. I will be right back with to talk about more of what happened in, in 2021 in New Jersey with Micah Rasmussen of Ryder University. Uh, You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. I am speaking with Micah Rasmussen, the director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. Micah, in the, in the time that we have left in the show, and once again, it's sailed by like it always does. Uh, I want to talk about what happened in 2021 and, and what we have to look forward to. Uh, Phil Murphy, re-election. I mean, that, I, I viewed that in, in the New Jersey Globe year in review as the, as the, the, the epic moment of New Jersey politics. 
Yeah, uh, of course. Um, you know, the first Democratic governor in a uh, generation to be reelected, the first one to buck um, the, uh, the the party in power in the White House. Um, you know, be you know coming to New Jersey the very next year and trying to win again. So um, it, it was a big deal. There's no question. On the other hand, part of the story, and you know, I know that they don't like it when I say it, but part of the story is that the numbers just um, weren't what he would have wanted or hoped them to be. And you know, I don't measure that necessarily as a reflection on him as much as I measure it as a reflection of Republic, additional Republican votes. And you and I have talked about that before. I think that there are more people voting Republican in New Jersey than there have been in the, you know, in the last two years for Trump they came out, and for this year for Chiarelli they came out. The question is, are they coming out again? And if they have, then we all need to figure out how to work that into our expectations. And one of the things I saw, I mean, I, I, I like many people, spent six months thinking, and, I, and I've said this before, what was, what is Cittarelli doing? You're supposed to, when you win a Republican nomination in New Jersey, when you win the Republican primary, you're supposed to move to the center. Cittarelli didn't. He actually inched a little bit more to the right. So did Diane Allen, his running mate. And that, that turned out to be a hugely smart strategy. Are we, are we, I, I talked about this a little bit in the, in the, in the year in review that it's, it's no longer, you know, Richard Nixon silent majority it's now it's now sort of an energized minority that has an outsized impact because they're coming out to vote well, you know, younger people, and I thought one of the best things you did in the year-end review, by the way, was your promotion of the next generation of, of, uh, of operatives. That was great. But one of the things they will tell you again and again and again, and it's just part of their calculus, is that elections are now about base votes. They're not about persuasion. They're about getting out your base. And I think that Cittarelli and Chris Russell and, you know, they all – figured out and knew that that was what they needed to do. They needed to get out those additional Trump voters. They got them out. They fed them all year long, and they rode that line very carefully. He sent the moderate message on issues like abortion, but he also didn't alienate those Trump voters. And so I thought that that was a really fine line that he rode, and I thought that they wrote it very well. So uh, I'm speaking with Micah Rasmussen of Ryder University. Micah, today, January 1, begins my I'm, – I'm beginning my 49th year in New Jersey politics, and I have never seen an upset like there was uh, in, in South Jersey when Ed Durr, a, a truck driver with practically no money, upset Steve Sweeney, the, the most powerful legislative leader in the history of the state. How – What's going to be the impact in, in 2022 on on a Senate with Ed Duren without Steve Sweeney? Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, look, we've talked about um, the fact that Steve Sweeney has been the adult in the room, and, 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 and a lot of Democrats aren't happy to hear that, and they don't like us to talk about that or say that kind of a thing. But look, he's been the moderate voice in the party and the moderating voice in the party for a long time. And it's not important just because he's a moderate or just because progressives don't win or holding him back. It's important because he's reminded the party of the need to win, of the, the fact that the party needs to be just more than red meat for progressives. And so without that voice, what kind of an impact does, does the Democratic Party just um, continue to run left? Um, you know, Scutari certainly has indicated that he's coming from the moderate wing. Uh, how does that play out? How does the power shift change within the party with Governor Murphy going forward? It's certainly going to be different. There's no question about it. 
And Nick Scatari, Craig Coughlin, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're both veterans of the legislature. They know how that place runs just because Steve Sweeney's a new Senate president, just because Nick Scatari's new as Senate president. I mean, this, this guy has been in the Senate for 18 years. He's been chairman of judiciary and he, he knows his way around. But, but one of the things I think it's probably going to be my, my last question of you Republicans in the legislature in, in 2022. I mean, we, we saw at the end of 21, suddenly it, it looked like Newt Gingrich's Republicans from the 1990s. Some, suddenly they, 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 they became energized. They became vocal uh, on the issue of vaccines. What do Democrats have to look forward to with this new Republican caucus? Well, I, I think I think the Democrats need to find some of that energy. I think they need to, you know, look. It's the twentieth. What is this? This is the thirtieth year of their expansion. Twentieth year of their majority. Uh, it's it's a little bit going through the motions. They need to find and and borrow some of that energy. They need to emulate that energy. They need to get out there and knock on doors. Republicans are hungry for it. They've had a little taste of success. They're going to be hungry again this year. There's no question about it. Um, you know, we'll go back to Steve Sweeney for just a second. I know we don't have a lot of time, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how the um, um, the map draws out on the uh, on the state legislative map um, with Steve Sweeney on that commission. He's not going anywhere. And so I think that's going to be a completely different process. And to borrow from something you say all the time, if you've seen one tiebreaker, you've seen one tiebreaker, I think Karchman is going to be completely different from uh, what we saw from Justice Wallace. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that process plays out. Do you think, uh, do you think, uh, Judge Philip Karchman, the the court-appointed tiebreaker for legislative redistricting, is he, uh, and I'm going to come back to where we were at the beginning of the show, is he watching what people are saying about Justice Wallace and saying, I don't want this to be me, I don't want people to be talking about me the way they're talking about Justice Wallace? I do, and I do think that's exactly what he's doing. And I do think, uh, you know, I'm, you you not, you don't like to take out the crystal ball, but I think we're going to see a much more engaged um, member. Remember. They don't have to be tiebreakers. There's nothing except tradition that says that they have to be tiebreakers. They can take on whatever role that they want to take on. If they don't want to just take on that binary choice of uh, which map they're going to choose, they can take on a more active role. I think we may very well see that with Judge Karchman. And I think I think one of the things we're gonna we're gonna we, we want to watch for is how many how many competitive districts he decides to draw. And I mean Princeton gerrymandering project. And I'm I'm hearing different things, so I don't want to say say a lot because I'm I'm hearing different stories as to how uh, Sam Wang and his staff uh, uh, worked with with Justice Wallace. Some people say they they drove the process. Other people say that they they just sort of you know walked along. So we have a lot to talk about. Micah Rasmussen, director of the Rebovich Institute of New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. It is always a pleasure. Happy New Year. Thank you for coming on. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you have been listening to the first New Jersey Globe Power Hour of the New Year on Talk Radio 77 WABC.